thank you very much, and uh, thank you for that ex almost excessive welcome. In the, in the course of her introduction, she mentioned uh, that I have co-taught this course in international antitrust at George Washington, and my co-teacher is John Briggs over there. Will you raise your hand, John, so we know who you are? <laughs> it, it's been a huge, it, Huge learning teaching with John's been a huge learning ex learning experience. Uh, anyway, I thank you. I'm 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 just terribly excited to be back here in Charlottesville. I I have two wonderful early memories related to this place. In the first, the first one concerns the International Journal, which published the first law review article I've, of the many I've ever written. And it, it, it came about because I had just come back from working in London for two years for a big solicitor's firm. And I found that the American lawyers tended to overlook foreign law provisions that were completely different from what we had at home. And uh, and this one happened to be some a tax, a, an important capital tax, that if you did it right, cost you thirty shillings in terms of a corporate reorganization or something, and if you did it wrong, it cost you two percent of the value of the transactions. So it was it was certainly a law worth knowing about, and so that and and I was honored that the journal was willing to take on this unknown young lawyer as an, as an, as an, as an author. Anyway, this, the second reason, um, that was in 1964, the second reason was that six years later, by then I was a young lawyer at the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, um, and my new friend, Professor Antonin Scalia, as he then was, was on leave from the law school working for an agency that I worked with a lot, for a while. And he, on leave from the law school, he was teaching a week, weekend seminar down here in Charlottesville on competition, uh, competition and communications policy. So he invited me down to, uh, to come co-teach two, two sessions with him. So I stayed at the faculty club on the lawns and um, and Scalia and I drove back and forth through the Civil War battlefields arguing about things that might ultimately become constitutional law questions. It was a great trip. Um, this time, I am grateful to the journal for giving me a serious reason to revisit the familiar antitrust cooperation um, arrangements that go on between the antitrust agencies and uh, think through and realize that they they're something they're not just something that were sort of hands-on tools that we were all we all used they are unique for reasons that I I will explain um, and uh, I have had the benefit in putting this together to have really helpful advice most recently received on an email last night, for, uh, helpful advice from people in the government 
actively involved in international antitrust, people involved in Europe involved on any international trends. So it's given me an excuse to spend some time exchanging ideas with some old friends who I much admire. It, as I say, it turns out that the long-standing system of close cooperation among antitrust agencies um, is unique compared with other areas of government regulation. Since my time in the, in, the, in the government in the 1970s, the U.S. antitrust agencies, the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, have worked closely with their counterparts in Brussels, Berlin, and Ottawa when the same agencies were investigating the same merger or cartel. Since that by time, interagency cooperation with foreign agencies, in particular investi on investigations, has become more continuous as markets are becoming more global and ever a larger proportion of the agency workloads involve international matters. In addition, the pressure to keep agencies' policies and procedures in general alignment with the other agencies um, has um, increased dramatically as the number of national competition agencies has multiplied since the 1980s to at least 130 around the world. When I was in the government, I'm not sure there were even 10 that we, um, that we um, had, to, uh, had to deal with. And after explaining the system, uh, I will then turn and try to uh, um, deal with what I think are some of the potential problems that our current world holds for this for this system and um, the, 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 the 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 disruptions come from several sources including national politics um, and that may take what are now regarded as t technical antitrust questions uh, in, out of the hands of the technicians and into the hands of the parliaments. Parliaments, of course, are much harder to keep in alignment than agencies that think roughly along the same line. Anyway, the, um, the challenges I will talk about are, first of all, um, the um, growing political ferment all over the place, not just in the U.S., over the great di digital monopolies which have emerged in the modern time. The second category is conflicts between agencies over whether to block or allow major international mergers. The third is the concerns the rise of um, private litigation in Europe and the potential of Europe having more favorable substantive laws in various areas of monopoly and hence becoming a forum <coughs> for attacking foreign countries, and particularly U.S. 
interests under about conduct that isn't necessarily illegal in the United States. And the fourth is um, um, climate change, which I just regard as a political wild card. To start with, let me talk about the different kinds of antitrust agencies. We, I will use the term competition agencies, antitrust agencies interchangeably. We use the word antitrust, most of the rest of the world uses competition, uh, but it, competition law, uh, and but either way, it's the same thing. Um, the antitrust can, enforcement can be entrusted to an administrative agency like the European Commission or the Federal Trade Commission, or it can be entrusted to a prosecutorial agency like the antitrust division of the U.S. Department of Justice, my alma mater. Um, and, this, uh, and some countries, there's a sort of hybrid system where um, there's an administrative agency to investigate civil, investi uh, civil um, violations if, and which are most of them, and th then the, uh, the civil agency, I'll, I'll explain this a little more, uh, can re refer potential criminal cases to the normal criminal prosecutors who sometimes take the agency advice and sometimes don't. Um, uh, the, ba the basic political difference is that the pro prosecutorial system is usually under the control, almost invariably under the control of the executive. And the agency system, the agencies are, you know, supposedly independent, which is why we have a Federal Trade Commission with no more than three members of one party on the, on the commission. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a different concept. Um, um, this, this initial institutional choice, a, agency versus prosecutor, is really important because it defines what the agency can do procedurally and sometimes substantively, as we'll see as I go along. Nearly all countries have, that have created these the new 130 agencies have since 1980 have chosen the administrative model of the EU rather than the prosecutorial model of the United States. The choice probably reflects the thinking and assumption of civil law countries. All the prosecutorial systems have been um, created in common law countries and, um, um, and but the, the ability to prosecute seems to me to be particularly important because, as you kindly said in your introduction, I have believed since my time in the Justice Department that punishing individual participants in cartels is important to deterrence and um, um, a subject I'm glad to talk about. Um, as I, so it, the the so-called hybrids, what I call the hybrid systems of having 
antitrust administrative agency plus um, um, a, a criminal prosecutor have occurred in places like uh, UK, Ireland, and to some degree in the modern system, Canada. Um, what is unique about the antitrust division of the Justice Department is it's the only example of both criminal and civil enforcement being in the hands of one agency anywhere in the world. And it's, I think it's an, act of, uh, an accident of history uh, because um, um, it, it, it started with the Sherman Act and that was before the rise of the modern administrative state. And so they wanted, they wanted to be able to both enjoin future conduct and, pa and punish past conduct. And, um, but it does mean that the Justice Department has more ability to bring criminal cases than any of the any of the countries using the hybrid system, and we've brought many, many more. Um, and, and there was an important watershed while I was at the Justice Department, which was the um, um, the Congress amended the Sherman Act to take it out of a being a fifty thousand dollar misdemeanor to being a, a million dollar felony. Jail sentences increased from one to three years, and the and and now I think it's ten years and hundred million dollars. I I've, I've forgotten how high the ceiling has gone, um, but uh, and uh, you know so we are. I shouldn't say we as if I were still in the government. Um, uh, you know we're sending. Dozens and dozens, of, you know, 20, 30 people a year to jail for antitrust violations. And almost nobody else in the world is sending anyone, even though they occasionally try. But the felony amendment convinced judges that the Congress really regarded antitrust as a serious offense and acted accordingly. Okay, let me now turn to the, I, I've said that the, system of cooperation among agencies, these different kinds of agencies, administrative agencies, prosecutors, is unique. Why is this so? Well, I think this, this is partly dictated by the reality that a national government, not just ours, a national government tends to be divided and I'm, and I'm dealing with the agencies that e deal with economics and money in some way or another. It's, it's divided between what I will call constituency-serving agencies, like labor or agriculture or even the trade representative. And, um, and the other are mission-oriented agencies where the, where the agency is, isn't confined to any particular sector but uh, has has a broader mission. Now, the constituency-serving agencies in our country almost inevitably adverse to the constituency-serving agencies in other countries. And some of the mission-oriented agencies um, uh, in the United States are also adverse to their, uh, their counterparts with the 
taxing authorities being the obvious example. Um, in, in law enforcement, there is some extensive cooperation under mutual legal assistance processes, but it, it's really a much more of a nuts and bolts process. Then we have other mission-oriented agencies with broad mandates like the Environmental Protection Agency, but they don't have anywhere near as much need to work closely with their foreign counterparts because they much less of their workload is um, <coughs> is, um, uh, is is international <coughs> and overlapping. A second, and so the 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 antitrust agencies, meanwhile, um, uh, have all kinds of um, reasons to cooperate. As I said, even even uh, even in my time, we were co you know we were cooperating over individual cases, and we're doing it not, you know, and cooperation in the antitrust area is not only at the head of agency or senior staff level, it's at the nuts and bolts level. You know, the case handler in Brussels picks up the phone and calls the person who's investigating the same transaction or thing and, 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 and suggests he might look or she might look at, 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 at something and so forth. And even in my time when there was less international, uh, I used to say that uh, I'm sure that there were a great many more telephone calls between the antitrust division in Brussels than between the antitrust division and the Commerce Department. Um, more than that, the national competition agencies uh, have complementary mi missions. Promoting competition in Germany is no way inconsistent with promoting competition in the U.S. And I say, as they routinely investigate uh, each other, the complementary, you know, the same transactions, and in some of the modern mergers, you'll get five or six or more agencies investigating, which is puts a lot of pressure on cooperation because there's so much room for conflict and confusion, which sometimes occurs. Um, um, and uh, I, um, 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 and the process, you know, and the process is just so continuous, uh, um, it goes on without regard to administration. Uh, and um, in addition, um, we've, we've, uh, the, in the antitrust area, we've, we've developed some important institutions for cooperation on an upper level. Another point which I hadn't thought about until I started talking to my experienced friends about this lecture is that the cooperation arrangements are seen uh, as a way of maintaining agency in enforcement agency independence from the uh, uh, from their po political establishments because part of the cooperation pr um, process and this is particularly true of you know a small agency in a small small place and some of these agencies are at really small places one example 
being the Channel Islands between Britain and France has an antitrust agency. And with a small agency in a, in a small country with no antitrust tradition, uh, it can very usefully um, um, benefit from best practices advice uh, and and suggested uh, even suggested reform, law reform. Anyway, let me turn now to the institutions that I think make make me much more convinced than when I. I was kindly asked to do this lecture of how unique the system is. Um, there, are two, there are two organizations. Um, um, one is the Competition Commission, Committee of, the organi of OECD, and, and it founded in 1961. And the other one is the much more inclusive international competition network founded in 2001, 40 years later. The, uh, let me start with the OECD committee. Since it was founded in 61, this committee has served as a forum for what may be uh, for more discussion among a much smaller group of national competition agencies, but most, most of the major ones. And, and they, they, they talk about both substantive law and uh, and uh, um, uh, and enforcement te techniques, but they're more they're they're particularly heavy, heavy on law and policy. When I was at the Justice Department in the '70s, the committee was quite small because there were so few few ex existing agencies. Yet we treated the committee as a useful forum to advocate our ideas and to listen to the ideas of others. And the, and the head of the, age, of the antitrust division would always, always attend the meeting in Paris. In fact, I can't resist telling you a, a story. I, when I was head of the antitrust division, I went to one of these OECD sessions, which was the first time as international deputy I hadn't been going. And so, I, and I'm chairing this committee, and uh, I propose something in terms of the process of the way the uh, um, we should proceed. And my subordinate, the head of the foreign unit in the United States, argues against that. And I say, "Well, does anyone else have any any, any anything to say?" And the German representatives raises his hand and says he thought it, what, what I was proposing was a perfectly good idea. And so I said, well, hearing no objection from anyone but the United States, we're going to do what I suggested. Um, the, since the 1990s, it's, the committee has is, is, is taken on um, a broader role because antitrust has been more important. And there have been more more leaders, so it's longer. Um, it's been particularly able to develop some quite constructive ideas. One that I particularly like was a 1998 report dealing more with arguing for more stringent enforcement against international price fixing and market 
allocation agreements, which the OECD labeled hard car hardcore cartels, a term we now use routinely. Um, the United the the the, the report urged members, OEC members, to, to give higher priority to cartel and anti-truck cartel enforcement, um, which of course was most welcome over here because we were very active in this field. But it is it it it, it focused on the kinds of laws you needed and the kinds of commitments of resources that you needed. And it, it has had a, a quite a favorable consequence. Um, and, uh, uh, and now the cartel, anti-cartel enforcement um, it is now a, uh, uh, is now a, a more important part of more, a, more agencies' agendas than it, than it was before. Um, another uh, important contribution of the OECD committee was to developing a process of systematic and reciprocal um, uh, perf I call it performance evaluation uh, of member inst member agencies, which which was a very useful step because it was really intended to be friendly and helpful and and give you advice give the, the particular advice and best practices recommendations that it could use back home in in its national capital it also organized reviews of competition and regulatory issues from the soundness of the competition goals and so forth and again this is this is served as an uh, uh, an important helpful thing for various agencies as they try at home politically to get their laws strengthened um, The other, the other important agency, um, um, you know, I think my arthritic knees are getting tired of standing here. So I think I will, with your indulgence, I will, I will, I will sit and talk from a microphone if that's okay. But I'll take my watch with me, and I hope I don't go over. Sorry. Um, the, 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 this is uh, the ICN is truly a virtual network uh, the, which, whose 130 members constitute almost all the antitrust agencies in the world. Um, but it, it it lacks a headquarters, a secretariat, or, or other traditional organizational features. And, um, you know, it's the kind of organization that is made possible by the, uh, the digital age of 
lots of emails and electronic transactions, I, it, it has one annual meeting, which I'll come back and talk to in a minute. Um, this new network was created in 2001 as a response to initiative by the head of the antitrust division, Joel Klein, and the European Commissioner for Competition, um, Mario Monti. Um, Klein in 2000 said, you know, the burden of international cooperation and coordination among various national authorities will likewise increase. It follows as the night to the day, as markets become more global, the number of countries having a legitimate enforcement interest in a particular merger will increase. This creates a whole host of problems substantively and procedurally about the simultaneous review of the same transaction by numerous agencies. Um, five months later, Commissioner Monte explained, I believe that the main mission of the forum, which the not yet created agency, should be to put in place an inclusive venue where the, those responsible for development and management of competition policy worldwide could meet, engage in constructive dialogue, and exchange their experiences on enforcement. The founders wanted the numerous small agencies uh, to have access to friendly national, uh, friendly practical advice and public support for their, from their well-established counterparts in Europe and North America. Um, uh, the, 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 the members of the organization were the agencies themselves and, but they invited the other world organizations, OECD, UNCTAD, World Bank, to participate, but not as voting members. And then, then the um, um, uh, the e each national agency was 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 allowed to invite a certain number of camp followers, usually agency alumni or, or people with, you know, some ex important experience, that they would, these so-called non-government advisors would come, come along and, to the annual meeting and participate in the working group sessions in between. You mentioned that I had been such a non-government advisor since uh, 2006, which is why I have more first-hand sense of how the ICN operates than how the OECD committee reads. Uh, but the missions of the two seem to be quite complementary in the sense that the OECD which, uh, committee, which is chaired by this splendid French economist, Fred Genie, who was one of my contacts, uh, 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 has more opportunity to deliberate over substantive policies as well as best practices and that. 
the ICN is more involved in uh, procedures and how to run investigations and so forth. Although we certainly do have, we certainly have, do have discussions of substantive rules. And they, the, the ICN has the, these working groups, which, uh, which exchange ideas on various subjects there. One's on mergers, there's one on, uh, on competitive advocacy by agencies. There's one on single firm monopolies, which is a committee that I, a working group that I participate in and so on. And, and we exchange a lot of ideas back and forth in that, in that process. Every year, the, 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 the um, ICN has its annual meeting um, hosted, has no headquarters, hosted by one of the member institutions. And this May, for the first time, uh, the U.S. is going to host the annual meeting, and it'll be, which will be in Los Angeles, but between annual meetings the working groups go ahead. But the annual meetings give the leaders of this very large group a chance to uh, get to know each other a bit and feel a little bit freer of calling up for advice. Okay, let me now turn to the um, two major uh, areas of, of enforcement and just talk very briefly about the one is one is anti-cartel enforcement, and the other is uh, mergers. And anti-cartel enforcement is interesting because the substantive laws and indeed processes are quite dissimilar. I mean, as, as I've already said, the Sherman Act is a hundred million dollar felony with a ten-year. Uh, the European Commission, which is probably the next most important antitrust enforcement agency, all it can do is le levy fines against the enterprises. And, uh, and um, I, uh, I think that is very much a second best solution. But, but, but when a cartel is being investigated, the, the staff members for the U.S. and the EU um, will we'll, we'll exchange quite a lot of information consistent with grand jury secrecy rules. And remember, the investigational techniques are quite different. We run this grand jury system, um, which I had a distinguished, when I was head of the antitrust division, I had a distinguished British diplomat say, you know, this is unbelievable. He said, here, here you've got something that, that went out of our system with the court of star chamber. You've got this star chamber system in which people are hauled in, no, not allowed counsel and everything else. <laughs> and I, I, I responded that, um, well, you know, the framers of the Bill of Rights could remember that the colonial grand juries used to no-bill the crown. And so they've seen it as a face, as a regard. As far as I'm regard, as my experience, which must cover hundreds of grand, I wasn't personally involved in, but I was went on while I was in the division. 
I think I can only remember one that the government was no bill, uh, and down, I think I was down in Mississippi, where the federal rent doesn't run quite as strong. Uh, my wife comes from there. Uh, anyway, so you, you get this diversion, uh, these divergent systems. In fact, the results aren't quite as divergent as you might think. They, most of our grand jury investigations get resolved by uh, plea bargains in which the government and the private lawyers negotiate about how much the company's going to pay and who's going to go to jail, things like that. And the, well, many of the European and, and through other administrative agencies um, um, negotiate about how much how much money uh, uh, they're going to have to pay for their violations, but there's nothing done about the individuals. The other big ongoing area of enforcement is mergers, and again, the formal systems are very very different in the sense that in order to block a merger, an administrative system, the European Commission, for example, the staff does the fight of the investigations, makes proposals to the commissioner, and if the commissioner agrees, they may, they may propose to block the, prohibit, to use the word, their words, prohibit the transaction. Uh, and that is then subject to do judicial review, but not until quite a bit later. In our system, of course, the government, whether it's the FTC or, or the Justice Department, which allocate merger cases between each other, will, will run, you know, run the factual investigation. They have a powerful tool in, in the uh, Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, which established pre-merger notification and requires companies to comply with very extensive demands for information. And, um, and they, but then having decided what to do, they have to go to a federal court, try a merger case before a federal judge who may never have seen an antitrust course or an antitrust case. And remember that merger law is a little quite different from um, um, most other areas of law. I can't think of any other area of law where an, an important question of substantive liability, as opposed to damages, substantive liability, is but is turns on guesses of what my intelligent guesses, economic. Per, uh, testimony on what might happen in the future. And the government bears a fairly tough burden in this, this, this area. Um, the, um, um, and, uh, and loses quite a few. You know, and, and, uh, and um, but again, in practice, as I was saying with the cartel area, the substantive uh, uh, law differences are taken away by complementary procedures because the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act, which was passed while I was Assistant Attorney General, 
um, requires pre-merger notification and gives the government a huge ability to hold up mergers. And that gives them, and, and as anyone who's ever represented merging, merging uh, parties knows, holding a merger together during a prolonged delay is a serious challenge. So that gives the, that gives the government quite strong leverage to negotiate. It's, it, the, essentially, the, the Hart-Scott Act made the government into an, the, it's into an administrative process not too dissimilar from Europe. And thus, the, both in Brussels, London, US, whatever, most mergers are resolved by some sort of consent agreement you, in, in a merger between two competitors, so-called horizontal merger, often by uh, 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 you know by a requirement that there's some some assets be divested. Um, the um, at this point, let me turn to what I the the potential challenges that I see to the new the new system. And now up till now I've been talking about facts and experience. Now I'm talking about what, what I regard as educated guesses, but others might regard as wild speculation. Anyway, um, the, as I s said briefly, I, this comes about um, because of, um, it seems likely um, that we may get more political action in some of these areas and, and the, the political action is somewhat out of the control uh, of the uh, 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 of the of the agencies. But let me start first with digital monopolies. As we all know from reading the uh, uh, the newspapers, there's building political pressure in many places in the world. Uh, uh, to, to do something about digital monopolies, which are the, even for people like me who've been around a lot longer than most of you, and, and the most powerful organizations in market force terms that we've seen. And um, so we've, we've seen, uh, and it shows that, that different countries proceed in different ways. In UK, EU, and Australia, they've appointed uh, small panels of experts to make recommendations. Uh, and I am particularly uh, fond of the so-called Furman Report in, in the United Kingdom, chaired by a former um, uh, member of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and, uh, and these these come up with a menu of ways of doing things. But they, um, um, they generally are recommending that, that there be a, I would call a sectoral regulator to deal with the special problems of information uh, and so forth. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the, the digital monopolies are a really complicated question from the antitrust point. Here we have enterprises that, that have become powerful by giving the public something that they really want and most of us really use. And they, they, and they have, uh, uh, by and large, given it away for what is nominally free. This then, before I go on with digital monopolies, let me talk for a second about mon monopoly law. Um, the, um, the traditional monopolist, the mo monopoly, the kind that have been prosecuted occasionally, but only occasionally under the Sherman Act, are usually what I'd call facilities-based monopolies, like AT&T or the, the railroad terminal at St. Louis, or whether it's the only way across the river for everybody, or a pipeline or even a railroad that's in the area. Um, and those are the cases that have dominated the, the agendas of both the United States and the EU. Um, where they've, they've, they've uh, dealt with monopolistic harbors and so forth, uh, and, as well as endless cases against European telephone monopolies. The other kind, so the first kind of monopoly is the facilities-based monopoly. The second one, which is a category I've made up and, and, and is what I call an innovation-based monopoly. This is someone comes along and invents a new mousetrap, and, um, and it conquers the world. Um, and it, and it, it, it may be supported by intellectual property, and it certainly tends to be supported by network effects. Network effects are where something becomes more valuable to you the more people were using it. A telephone company network was, of course, a good example of having network effect. Um, and the modern American cases are, uh, that, that have, we've had three important modern American cases. One was AT&T, which was facilities-based. The other was IBM. And the third was Microsoft. And the IBM case, was eventually dismissed by the government. I disliked it when I was there, but anyway, but it was dismissed by the government because the technology, the world ran away from the case which was going on forever, and uh, no one was quite sure what the remedy was. The Microsoft case uh, was, you know, in, involved using the, um, the operating system to uh, uh, foreclose various other things. Um, and it, they, they never really quite figured out a, a, a um, uh, remedy for it either. The government agreed to pro propose to uh, um, that the, the company be broken up. I don't know, it's gonna be broken up into an operating system unit and a, and a applications unit or what. 
and the district judge who ran it right wrote quite a good opinion finding violation then said well the government's one is titled what it's want or it wants the court of appeals said that's wrong and they were right and and um, and so the case the new administration eventually settled the case for some bits and pieces to relief. Um, so um, the the, the um, so we're, we're into in addition in dealing with the digital monopolies we're into the one area where um, the um, um, the, the um, there isn't really serious convergence in anti, in antitrust. Uh, the U.S. limits itself to exclusion, what we call exclusionary conduct, conduct that keeps people out of out of coming into the market. And the Europeans and many other countries deal with what they call abuse of of of, of, of dominant market power. And that's a much more regulatory concept, and they will use it to regulate various nuts and bolts situations, like literally the ferry schedules in a harbor where one, one, one of the two ferry companies controlled the harbor. They made them do a fair scheduling thing. Um, so we, we've got an area where we don't know um, um, uh, exactly what the what the rules are, and uh, the um, um, and so we've got a situation where it seems likely that with a, a fair amount of political pressure to do something, that the European Commission will use its, uh, its its ability to punish unfair operations by dominant people for um, dominant market payment to try to regulate things, and it's doing it already. In other words, it, it is it has brought cases against Google for discriminatory display of search results and so forth. And there's there's a wide range of things that might uh, uh, might come come to pass. And now the, uh, the reality, of course, still is that the, the digital monopolists are all U.S. And this raises a great, even more problem for the cooperation uh, situation because the U.S. agencies will be under pressure to support them, and the if and if the EU and others start bringing what we regard we we the politicians, not necessarily we in the room, as unfair uh, treatment of Facebook and Google and all those people. They may become national champions with the administration really supporting them. And this is not just a 
Don Baker made up hypothetical, because what's going in, on in the tax area is highly illustrative. In the tax area, France and England, the UK, uh, are trying to develop tax systems to tax <coughs> revenue values of that uh, um, these digital American digital giants are earning in their countries. And the US has said that if they do that, we're going to levy heavy duties on camembert, champagne, and things like this to, as a retaliation against uh, the, uh, the, the taxes. And so I don't know what happens in this area. I, I mean, I think this is really interesting. The second source, okay, okay, I'll be out. Thanks for, thanks, thanks for the, thanks for the, the, the warning at the bell. Um, um, the, the second area is um, interagency disagreements over mergers. Um, um, and the past gives, here gives us some useful guidance with, with the continuing growth of global markets. More and more mergers have effect in more and more markets. Um, a big international merger um, can generate political concerns, antitrust concerns, in faraway places at the same time. If the merger involves two companies with the same nationality, there are two kinds of problems that I can envision and, and have seen. One is the foreign agency seeks to block a transaction extraterritorially, not involving its own companies. And the second one is that the home country blesses a uh, merger which some, some foreign agencies say shouldn't be blocked and maybe they will block. Um, this again, these kinds of situations you know, are a real test for the cooperation system. The, the two historic examples are um, uh, in 1997, Boeing and McDonnell Douglas, who were then two of the world's three largest air, large airplane manufacturers, proposed a merger, merge. After investigating, the DOJ decided that they would have to let the transaction go because McDonnell Douglas was, in fact, if they believed a failing company. Although the, this, this had never been disclosed publicly. The, the EC, which of course was home to Airbus, um, um, the only competitor, became quite concerned about the proposed approval. And a lively dialogue went back and forth between officials in Brussels and Washington. And uh, the U US was ultimately successful, but I understand that a number of European officials, important European officials, felt they'd been bullied. The next one was four years later and went the other way as, as the EC prevailed to the annoyance of the US. This was the famous merger between General Electric and Honeywell. Um, this would have, 
And I might add before I say anything else, John Briggs again was a very important player in that drama. So if you're interested in, and it, it's an interesting drama, go get him at lunchtime or something. Um, the, 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 the merger would have combined a major supplier of all, all kinds of avionics equipment, namely Honeywell, with, with one of three makers of jet engines. The EC was concerned that it would, the, um, the, the merge company would use its uh, leverage to coerce customers to take OA, uh, Honeywell avionics rather than their own. And, uh, and, they, um, and objectors, including American objectors, soon flocked to Brussels because they found the Brussels officials were much more interested in this kind of theory than the American ones. I, I in fact, had a, I was representing an American subsidiary of a British company. And after talking briefly in Washington, I, I too, went to Brussels. But my client then got cold feet because it decided that the, the merged company, which it still assumed was going to happen, would have so much market power that it could really screw the objectors in the future. Um, and, but we had the, um, 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 officials from the, um, the U.S. agencies over in Brussels arguing it was wrong, but Commissioner Monty stuck to it. Um, um, the, the, the next and almost the last substantive thing I'm going to say is a, a risk to the system comes from private antitrust cases against foreign defendants. Um, private antitrust has been a source of huge disruption from time to time, between, but the United States has always been the source of this the disruption, because we, we've had private antitrust litigation since the Sherman Act, and in, in order to encourage um, private plaintiffs to bring cases, we have provided unique bounties to, uh, to the, uh, uh, in the form of automatic trebling of damages. The jury isn't told that damages are going to be trebled. Is, and they sh they, they're not allowed to be told. Uh, and so it's a pure bounty. And the second thing is <coughs> the cost rule for, uh, for antitrust cases is that the successful plaintiff gets the other side to pay its cost, but the, the successful defendant doesn't. This really annoys the foreigners because in most other countries, there's a loser pay cost rule and who, whoever loses and the successful defendants get something back. And this, what I see as a risk is the um, um, private, anti, and, and, and of course private antitrust is completely out of control of the agencies. Our past experience was involved the uranium industry, where in the early 70s, the U.S. embargoed the import of foreign uranium in order to protect the American uranium miners. Foreign governments of uranium-producing countries set up a 
they would call it a protection cartel or something, that try to prop up the price for their workers. <coughs> then the OPEC thing came along, energy prices soared, and Westinghouse, which had promised uranium when it sold generators, uh, nuclear generators, didn't have the cover for its contracts. So it went out and started suing all the foreign producers. And the foreign governments reacted ferociously. Not only did we hear from the agencies, but I, I had diplomats in and everything. And they, they had foreign countries ended up enacting what were called blocking statutes in which a British en uh, ent entity that wasn't, um, uh, that was served with process in an American antitrust case could not uh, um, uh, produce documents or, in, or witnesses without the express consent of the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. And so the whole thing was a complete mess and that set up a problem. But I am concerned about the shoe on the other foot situation because as I suggested in talking about digital monopolies, I think the EU system of dealing with dominant firms is going to be more permissive to challengers of monopolies. And moreover, the national laws that have been established over there in the urging of the commission generally provide that a, um, um, that, that a government, uh, we have a similar rule over here, but a government decree finding a violation can be used as evidence to prove the violation. This is hugely important in a civil law country where there's so little discovery anyway, so you've got this, this weapon. So I, I envision the possibility that we'll end up with some European decisions against maybe the digital giants, maybe others, most Americans, and uh, we'll suddenly see people bringing cases, private cases in Europe, based on the government decrees, and it will become a really hot issue if the, uh, some of the plaintiffs are really U.S. competitors and things like that, so we're just competing for them. The last disruption, which I don't have to say anything about, because it's, it's the purest of speculation, is climate change. And climate change, I, I regard as a political wild card, uh, not as a hoax, but as a political wild card, and that uh, uh, there is already, there have already been some boycotts, foreign boycotts of carbon intensive products or uh, uh, to protect uh, um, forests and things. And the, uh, and the, the situation is in Europe, for example, the government agency can bless under Article 1013 uh, these kinds of agreements. We can't, and so we can end up with a, with a, a messy scene in which the United States is, is, is an outlier and there's a lot of dissatisfaction. That said, I really thank you all for your patience, and I hope some of this was interesting. It's really, really, really been interesting for me to consult with all, the, with all these friends and governments, government alumni,
about these questions. Uh, anyway, thank you very much.